0: Thank you so much for listening. I'm excited to share this conversation with Tracy Brown. Before we dive into this week's episode, I have a few announcements to share. Our spring exhibition, Rise, opened on Friday, April 23rd, and will be up through June 18th. I just love what emerged as Maria and I curated this show. Here's a portion of our curatorial statement. This spring feels especially full of renewal as we begin to rise from this pandemic, as we raise up our voices for justice, as we bloom and rise into the light. When we shared this open call with the theme of rise, we had these ideas in mind. What emerged encompasses the hope and transformation of this season and this strange time, as well as a darker side of renewal. What is lost as this world changes? As we rise from the ashes, what do we leave behind? A theme of memory and nostalgia emerged. Plants aptly appeared in several works, literally growing and rising, or metaphorically creating space for considerations of finance, feminism, and motherhood. We saw repeated themes and imagery around circles, with references including bubbles, mushrooms, shells, moons, holes, and the hole. Butterflies appeared in several pieces, calling to mind metamorphosis. Transformation is not pretty. As Ferris Jabber writes, the caterpillar digests itself, releasing enzymes to dissolve all of its tissues. If you were to cut open a cocoon or chrysalis at just the right time, caterpillar soup would ooze out. We're wading through that caterpillar soup right now, working to transform. And Amanda Gorman's beautiful words fit perfectly here. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it ah to read more and see the exhibit that includes 25 incredible artists visit playinspiregallery.com And when we came up with the name for this gallery adventure, Maria suggested Play Plus Inspire and shared with me that she had a vision of a learning studio and gallery by that name. I loved it and we went with it. But now she is also making the learning studio a reality. Introducing the Play Plus Inspire studio membership by Maria Coit, artist, art teacher, and founder of Curated for Kids. Members will receive bite-sized content weekly aimed at helping them develop or hone their creativity into a consistent, joyful practice. The best part is the private Facebook community where members can share joys and cheer each other on. Enrollment is open through May 1st for the founding member price of $16 a month. You can join today at www.mariacoit.com slash joinplayinspire, and that is join-play-inspire. Have you joined me in the Art Educators Lounge? If not, I would love to see you there. The Art Educators Lounge is a monthly Zoom meeting that I facilitate with Victoria Fry of Visionary Art Collective. But our dream is for this to really be a community of fellow artist educators who lift each other up. We alternate between free community meetings where we share everything from our studios, our teaching practices, challenges, successes, encouragement. And then we also have workshops with guest facilitators. The workshops do have a small fee which is set up on a sliding scale. And that is in order for us to pay those facilitators. We don't ask anyone to work for free. This morning, I'm recording this right before releasing on April 24th. So this morning, we had an incredibly helpful and meaningful workshop with Alicia Mernick, who led us through an identity mapping project that she does with her students We unpacked our own identities and biases while also discussing how to facilitate this kind of work with students. While we won't be sharing a replay, we will be sharing a summary and some great links to resources and books recommended during the session. If you'd like to join us in the next meeting, keep an eye on our Instagram and make sure you're on our email list. Meetings are held the last Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. And we do also have a Facebook group, so if you search for Art Educators Lounge, you'll find us there. Okay, on to our featured artist and then this week's conversation with Tracy Brown. Each week, I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here, as well as sharing images of their work on Instagram and on the website. Our featured artist this week is Clara Bole. Clara studied philosophy and cultural studies with honors. In addition to creating, she occasionally holds lectures and talks about the philosophy of art, cultural critique, and art history for cultural institutions and universities. She also has a study coaching business, and she is the founder of Parhesiastes' blog. From her statement, she says, As a philosopher, I view my writings and art as tools to do research. My main question in relation to thinking and making is, what does it mean to be your body instead of having a body? My aim is to think of bodies in a non-medical, anti-capitalist way and look for other ways to experience our bodies. I draw my inspiration from great philosophers, writers, and artists. A major inspiration for me is Metamorphosis by Ovid concerning the change of bodies, especially the figure of Daphne who changed into a laurel tree to escape violation. There's also a strong social interactive dimension in my work in the sense that I like to work with others to give them a voice of their own. You can see more of her work on her website at ClaraBolle.com, and her last name is B-O-L-L-E, or at Clara Bolle on Instagram, C-L-A-R-A-B-O-L-L-E. And we will also be sharing her work on our Instagram and on our website at teachingartistpodcast.com. If you would like to submit your work to be featured, you can do that over at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Tracy shared so vulnerably about body image and the importance of being seen and valued for who you are. She talked about struggling in school, but feeling power as an artist and how her experiences really shape her teaching. She shared so many wonderful resources for teaching and art making, which I've also linked in the blog post, so don't miss that. Tracy Brown was born and raised outside of Detroit, Michigan, and obtained a BFA with a major in art education from Michigan State University in 2005. She has been an art teacher for the past 14 years, and she is dedicated to instilling a passion and appreciation for creation and self-expression into her students. Tracy believes in the ability of art to transform and bridge minds into understanding and unity. She moved to the desert to teach and make art during the Great Recession without intentions of staying but fell in love with the slower-paced lifestyle, culture, and the landscape of the desert. Over the last decade, Tracy has had an artist studio in downtown Tucson and has been actively showing her art in feminist exhibitions nationally and internationally. Her work has been on display in group shows in venues such as Som Arts Cultural Center in San Francisco, Denise Bibro Gallery in New York, Gallery 825 in Los Angeles, the National Steinbeck Center, the Women's Museum of California, the Untitled Space in Tribeca, and Song Institute of Contemporary Art in Gimpo, South Korea. Her work on male bonding is included in the private collection of the Gwangju Cultural Foundation in South Korea, which is host to one of Asia's major biennials. She has had her work on display next to and juried by artists such as the Guerrilla Girls on Tour, Lynn hirschman Leeson, Mae Wilson, Sylvia Slay, Beverly Buchanan, Susie Lake, and Faith Wilding. Her work has been included in exhibitions juried by directors of major contemporary museum art collections, such as Rita Gonzalez of LACMA, Maria Medua of San Francisco MoMA, Lynn Russell of the National Gallery, along with Eleanor Hartney, contributing editor to Art in America, Art Press, and more. Tracy has had work published and referenced in Elle Italia, Marie Claire Brazil, Dazed Digital, Bullet Magazine, and the Huffington Post, to name a few. Ah, such a powerhouse artist. Let's hear from Tracy. I am here with Tracy Brown, and I'm excited to hear about your journey. And that's always a good starting point. Could you kind of walk us through it? How did you become an artist and then also a teacher? Sure. Yeah, of course. First of all, thank
1: you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm a fan. Yeah. yeah, I'm super excited to be a part of this. My journey as an artist, I actually reflecting on this question, I didn't realize how early that journey started. Uh, I So basically, I have a memory as a small child of holding a paintbrush in my hand and living in the desert, which I didn't even understand what that meant. But my first two years of education My family lived in a town called Plymouth, Michigan, about 20 minutes outside of Detroit. And we went to, my brothers and I have two older brothers, we attended a Montessori school called New Morning School. And those first two years of school, I don't remember anything except creating. All of the learning was project base. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of drawing and painting. And I remember telling stories and always illustrating them with like collage and mixed media fabrics and fur. And we had a lot of one-on-one assistance. And I remember doing paper mache and plaster molds. I realize now how much it really shaped my learning style and connection Mm -hmm. to becoming an artist and educator. When I was in kindergarten the second year, my parents decided and the school decided I should repeat kindergarten because socially they thought it wasn't ready to move on. And we moved over to Armington, which was just a district over. And the schools at the time, I guess, were supposed to be a little bit better. But I don't remember having art until Mm -hmm. maybe like third or fourth grade. And it was such Uh. a disadvantage. Yeah, it was such a disadvantage for me because I was definitely that kid who needed That form of expression. And, you know, I was pulled out for reading and math, and it was really hard on my confidence as a small kid to not have that until, or at least I don't remember having it until like maybe fourth grade and just being so stoked every week to go to art class. It was like the highlight of the week. And then it was in middle school. Art teachers took us to the DIA, which is the Detroit Institute of Arts. And I just remember walking into the gallery room that housed the Diego Rivera Detroit Factory Worker Mural and just being overwhelmed with the beauty of it. And I was just like, whoa, I can't believe someone painted this. And the docent telling the story about Diego Rivera was so inspiring and how he used activism and he painted to inform people and to challenge society and to fight for equality. He was telling the story of, you know, the power structure and class structure that was going on between the owners and the business people and the factory workers and then the bourgeois. I remember the docent talking about the bourgeois and how you could tell their class by the clothes that they were wearing and just not fully really understanding the whole class thing at the time, but getting the idea that art can be used as a form of communicating, a form of power, and for social change. And Mm -hmm. I just, that really influenced me. And In seventh grade, since I was kind of in the lower track, those of us who are in education know that sometimes when students feel like they're not getting it, like I know my math class, I struggled in so hard, and a lot of the kids did. There's a tendency for behavior issues to arise. So I just remember being in those classes. And it was in my art class in seventh grade where I remember sitting alone and watching all of that distraction fade away and getting lost in the process. And my teacher noticing my enthusiasm for it and nurturing that. And that moment where everything clicks, where I started to see like the negative space and how different parts of the painting and drawing were related to each other. So that's really when I knew, okay, this is soothing. This is good for my anxiety. This is where I belong. And yeah, from there, I just took all the classes in high school that I could. Every semester or quarter, I had another art class. I remember my high school counselor pulling me in and saying, you know, if you want to go to a four-year school, you really need to catch up in your math and science you have to take and I just being naive I was like oh I'm going to art school I don't need those classes and they were like okay yeah I definitely kind of paid for that a little bit when I did get into a four-year university because my parents basically they're supportive of all of their children and us but they were highly encouraging me to go into either education or graphic design which was okay for me because I I really loved working with kids but because I took so many classes in high school, I did have to take quite a bit of remedial math and science. So that was a bit of a struggle. But yeah, I've always been an artist. I've always loved art. I've just been inspired by a lot of great teachers, mostly female teachers and professors. When I got into college, I actually went to, well, I did a couple years of community college because I just wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go go away like I knew I wanted to be an art teacher and I just kind of the transition for me was kind of a big one like just making that leap from being at home to going to college and I just wanted to kind of take my time and you know work on my GPA and the skills I could the general requirements to get out of the way there. So when I went to Michigan State I took a lot of ceramic classes which is interesting because now I'm more of a 2D artist. I prefer painting and drawing and mixed media. And I remember professors always trying to get me to convert over to studio art. And uh, it was kind of interesting how they were like that with our art education majors for some reason. But yeah, I just felt really inspired by, I had one professor, her name's Diane de Simone, and she was super encouraging of especially female artists in the class. And Of me, I felt like she was just kind of that one professor that made me feel confident in myself. And it was just really her encouragement led me towards the interests I have in my subject matter and the focus I have on women in arts and women in the media and repetitive images and feminism. So that's the beginning of my art story.
0: Yeah, well, there's so much there. You know, <laughs> I love hearing about Montessori School and how your learning at such a young age was really like project based and story based. And, you know, there's so much more there. But just thinking about that, how do you think that has influenced your teaching? I think it has. I have a lot of students
1: who I see that little girl in. The student who's really shy or nervous. I have a lot of students who have learning disabilities or IEPs or Mm -hmm. in special education. And I want all of my students to feel safe and like they can be successful in art class. And I try to share with them my story of how I did struggle in like the common, like the core classes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I use art to express myself and my anxieties and how art can be used as a vehicle of change. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think it influenced how I connect to my students and relate for sure.
0: Yeah, and that idea of like your teacher nurturing you as an artist and just helping that happen and then kind of like paying that forward as a teacher. Yeah, definitely.
1: I feel like I am like a combination of very... Like when I start the school year off, I'm very structured and like kind of strict, but loving. And then like my nurturing becomes more in the forefront. I just have such a, a love for my students and so much
0: compassion for them. I feel like as you got older, that sort of nurturing, it sounds like continued in some ways. And, you know, I love hearing about the professors and the female professors that really pushed you forward and inspired you.
1: Yeah. That feels
0: like an extension of the teachers when you were younger, kind of encouraging you to keep making art, keep taking the art classes.
1: Yeah, definitely. It really was because, you know, in my experience, in my passion and love for art, I don't think that I was taken seriously, per se, from Mm. maybe some people in my life that had good intentions, but it was very difficult for me. I would say I wasn't The most advanced artist when I started, but I just loved it so much, and I would just do it all of the time, and I never stopped doing it because I wasn't the student making the most realistic art, you know. Because I experienced along this path, like some people have a certain understanding of art. If they haven't studied art, it's supposed to look like a photo or realism Mm. or representational. And for me, it was kind of a struggle of like. Just getting the expression out and Mm -hmm. having that valued. And I try to, because I see, I get a lot of students who are very talented, but maybe they don't maybe have the passion or drive that I see in a student who is maybe not at an advanced level, but they love it and they want to make it all the time. And I just, I try to really nurture that and to show them and tell them that, like, if you keep at it with persistence, that's where you're going to see the growth and that's where the magic is. So that's a big part of my teaching. And also, yeah, I kind of like to think of myself as a pretty laid back teacher, fun, easygoing, fun, loving teacher. Yeah,
0: Yes. (laughs) But then I also love this connection that you saw, like, just hearing about how you saw Diego Rivera's work. And at such a young age, that sparked this idea of art being a vehicle for change, art being, you know, art as activism. Yeah. Yeah. Like bringing that into your own work. Does that also come into your teaching?
1: I would say it comes into my teaching. It definitely, it comes into my work a lot. I could talk Mm -hmm. about that. I do try to bring that art as activism into the classroom when I can. By exposing my students to artists from a diverse background and telling their stories and also like telling them how I've used activism in my background. The way that I like to bring activism to my classroom, one of the concepts I try to teach my students outside of just art and education is citizenship and community. And I have a really mm-hmm. big focus on that. And I try to reinforce my students to speak up, you know, when they think something is wrong or when they, you know, I try to show them how they can use art to articulate When they see something that's unjust in the Mm -hmm. world. And I've tried to show them artists that they can relate to on that level. And recently, one of my favorite artists that we talked about was Hilma F. Klimt. Mm -hmm. And my students really seemed to connect with her work. And we did have a chance to talk about the underrepresentation of female artists throughout history and BIPOC artists. And mm-hmm. I've really been inspired recently by connecting to Victoria and Visionary Art Collective. And actually, that's how I discovered the Teaching Artists podcast is just by networking online and making those connections. And yeah, yeah it's been so cool. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of reinvigorated my excitement about teaching and just like going deeper into the content of contemporary artists. So the last couple... Well, the last lesson I did with them, I actually got off of Visionary Art Collective and then I did a lot of like slideshows and videos on it. But we did Mm -hmm. my personal mural Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: it was so great to connect all of the contemporary artists with the lesson. And I've noticed over the years that I have kind of like gotten into a habit of maybe not always I don't know you can kind of get comfortable in your teaching style where Mm -hmm. it's easy to teach what you've taught in the past or to not always expand your curriculum so it's just been nice to get inspired to teach new artists and some of the artists that were in the lesson I found that my students really connected with and it was so cool to teach them about Lady Pink Alex Diaz Mm -hmm. and there's an Afghanistan artist named Shansi Hansen. I can't pronounce it. She told her story about what it was like to live in Afghanistan and be one of the only female street artists and the struggle that she's overcome. And the kids were just really into her and Lady Pink specifically. Mm -hmm. Lady Pink really talked about also being the only female graffiti artist back in the 70s and 80s and how she had to really work so hard to carve out her place in that group in history. And she talked about being an immigrant and a dreamer. And I noticed that my kids, they just loved this lesson so much. And she talks about that you can become who you want to be. If you want to be a successful artist, to keep chasing that and you will do it. And I just, as far as art and activism, I just, I really want my students to, you know, Just get exposed to a variety of contemporary artists and know that they can be successful. And if they want to convey a message in their art, that's the kind of art that the world needs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love hearing about how impactful those artists are. And then also, were you sharing videos from the artists or were they, did they come and, you know, virtually visit the class or was it more just sharing videos? It was more sharing videos. I
1: wish they could could just be so amazing. It was through video and discussion Mm -hmm. and just looking at their work. I've just been looking for ways to connect to my students with this COVID. It's been so hard and just going deeper and richer into the content and giving them Mm -hmm. something to connect to has just been making it such a big difference. It's, I don't know what your experience is, but it's been different. It's been kind of hard to make that connection and build that relationship, which is such a huge part of being an art teacher is building that community of safety and camaraderie.
0: Yes, absolutely. And what is your teaching situation now? Thanks for asking. Yeah. I'm like, we should talk about what does it look like? Yeah. So
1: I am in... I'm not sure if I said I'm in Southern Arizona, in Tucson, Arizona, about an hour hour from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And we went to remote teaching pretty much when everyone did in March. Mm -hmm. And it was just like every teacher, you're just struggling to figure out how to do that. It's new to all of us. So I noticed a big decline after maybe like the first month in remote teaching. The first month it was going pretty well as far as students touching in and handing in work and keeping up with assignments. But as time went in on, I'm not sure how it was across the entire United States, but in Arizona, our legislation, they said that the kids, they couldn't have their grades go below whatever they, the grade that they had before we went to remote. So they could only bring their grade
0: up. Was that Similar to your situation or well, I feel like I'm a little bit disconnected because I'm a teaching artist. I work through a nonprofit that sends oh. me into the schools, which has meant that I don't have to do grading. <laughs> so I'm a little bit disconnected there. Oh, okay. Like I create curricula and you know teach in the classroom but the classroom teacher is always there Uh, and it's thought of as both you know teaching the students but also sort of professional development for the teachers okay because I only I'm not there all the time like basically each student gets 10 lessons throughout their whole year and the rest of the time they have art from their regular like classroom teacher Oh, so are you um, teaching it in collaboration with the classroom teacher? or are you... No, I mean, it's completely like I developed the curricula. Now that I've been there at the same schools for a few years, although COVID changed all that. But yeah. before yeah. I would kind of touch base with them and say, you know, these are my plans. If you see any connections to like your other, you know, something you're doing in math or reading or whatever, yeah. I'd love to help make those connections. But yeah, in general it was completely autonomous. Like I develop the uh-huh. curricula and write it up and teach it. And they're just kind of there because I'm not certified. So they have uh-huh. to be in the classroom.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: But the organization I work for thinks of it as sort of a little bit of professional development for the teacher, just to mm-hmm. see like an art lesson and see how, you know, learn some new techniques that may they might not know as non artists. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, so a long way to say I don't really know what the (laughs) what the situation was.
1: (laughs) I mean grading, it's very difficult sometimes as an art teacher to grade, but it was more about the students kinda like, Oh, I don't have to do this and falling off. That was Uh, the concern. But I think we got that back. We got the kids back on track for this mm -hmm. year. So we were more prepared to keep those students online and on track. But we have a lot of students who don't have access or Don't have access to the materials, which thankfully this year I was able to put together some art kits for them so that they could at least, you know, do the two dimensional lessons, which I'm focusing on two dimensional lessons because Hmm. so many of our students don't have access to, you know, paints or oil pastels and clay. But yeah, yeah, so my teaching situation has been going between remote to hybrid and then back to remote. Uh, And now we're back in hybrid. So we uh, went back to hybrid this last week. It's been kind of hard to keep track of everything.
0: Right. Yeah. And what does hybrid look like for you? I feel like that word encompasses so many different things. It really does. Yeah. Like some people are expected to be teaching in person while they're also at the same time teaching online, which sounds Mm -hmm. insane. You know, that's Mm -hmm. doing two jobs at the same time. Yeah, (laughs) it was
1: really overwhelming at first but we're actually doing it in a way that i think makes sense good at first i was afraid of it but now there's a flow to it but mm-hmm. yeah we're teaching through google classroom so uh-huh. i'm basically posting the lesson with slideshows and videos and then all the resources in the google classroom so what we have is a a cohort and a b cohort and on mondays and tuesdays we have our a group of eight kids come in. So it cuts our class size in half. Mm -hmm. So they're there on Monday and Tuesday. And on Wednesday, all the kids are at home. And on Thursday and Friday, the other group comes in. So it's like split in half. But on Wednesdays, the teachers are working from their classrooms or at home. Well, I work at Mm -hmm. home because I've actually been an our teacher full time for 14 years. But this is my first year working as a part time teacher. It kind of happened because we lost half of our elective courses for my school. Mm -hmm. And because we found out like a week before we went back to our contracted hours, I wasn't feeling comfortable and confident enough to teach the courses that they wanted me to teach. So they allowed me to just take this year and teach just two classes in the morning. Mm -hmm. So since I'm only part-time, I'm working from home on Wednesdays, which is nice because it allows me to kind of catch up. And I mean, that. It's great for all of the teachers, even in the classroom, because it gives us time to do our grading and prepare our hybrid lessons to be posted on the Google Classroom. So, yeah, so the kids are basically expected to follow along the Google Classroom. So when they're in person, we're supposed to be doing the same thing that the kids would be doing at home. And then Mm -hmm. when the kids are at home, they're just kind of continuing the Google Classroom. So ideally, that's a beautiful layout. To just continue but in reality it's been a little more tricky to keep the kids on path so I do find that it's kind of slowing the curriculum down but mm-hmm. it's okay we have to be kind to ourselves and you know be flexible in these strange unpredictable times
0: yes absolutely yeah. uh yeah I feel yeah. like flexibility and grace are <laughs> like the big words for they me are. right now they are so- They are
1: the big words for sure. Yeah, Yeah. it's been a time of just slowing down and saying, you know what, this project isn't what it used to be. You know, it's okay. It's Mm -hmm. okay if it's not, you know, we're adapting, we're readjusting. And we have to stay in hybrid for, you know, if this continues, we don't know when it's going to end. But I know as educators and teachers, we are very innovative and we know how to collaborate and we will get better at it. Mm -hmm. Our kids will produce better quality work. We'll learn how to connect with them more optimistic about the future. I hope that we are able to go back in full person sooner than later, but we just don't know what's going to happen. But I've been really impressed with how educators have come together to network and to support each other. And I just, I'm so impressed with even like the workshop that you and Victoria did recently it was so helpful for educators to connect And also, I'm noticing Facebook, there's just such a great network of educators who are so willing to share and to just help each other out. It's really inspiring.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm so glad to hear that that was helpful. I feel like sometimes putting things together and just kind of putting them into the world, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of imposter syndrome. And then there's also just this, you know, like, similar to my teaching right now where it's all video. I feel like sometimes I'm putting things out and I have no idea how they're landing. Yes. Yes. I know. And
1: I hear you with feeling that sense of imposter syndrome. I feel like I had that with getting myself out there with my art at the beginning.
0: Yeah. I don't know when that goes away. Does that ever go away? I don't know. I
1: think it's actually, I
0: think it does. I think you learn to
1: step into I don't know, over time, it, or maybe it doesn't all completely go away, but it gets easier. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quieter voice in the head. Right. <laughs> Maintain it a little bit. Keep it up. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, keep pushing it back. Yeah. Uh, I also, I put a note when you talked about encouraging students to sort of speak up when they see injustice. I wrote that down because there is teaching tolerance has a set of standards, I'm not sure what the standards are called. Something or tolerance and justice stand I don't I'm not sure. I'm gonna like butcher the name of what, uh, what they label their standards, but that language is almost word for word one of the standards. Oh wow that you're encouraging students to speak up when they see injustice. So yeah, that might be and anybody listening, teaching uh-huh. tolerance is a great resource.
1: Yeah, I'll have to check that out. You know, I recently came across the anti-racist art teacher. I think that's what it's called. They might've had some article on there about that. Was that?
0: They probably did.
1: Yeah. They're such a great resource. I'm trying to make it a Mm -hmm. habit to uh, start reading like at least an article every week or so to get back into that practice of nurturing, just expanding within my own field of being an art educator Sometimes I feel like I get a little out of balance. I know you asked about like how your teaching informs your practice, and your practice informs your teaching. Yeah, yeah. It's just been one of my goals this year is to amp it up a bit with the education articles.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's a place where I don't have very good balance either. It's hard to mm-hmm. make that time for mm-hmm. reading and then also reflection, especially yeah. you know when you're reading about bias and trying to be anti-racist that there's so much inner work and reflection and another you probably know this one but I recently interviewed uh, Flavia and Sydney who started adding voices that's another really fantastic resource and they have a Patreon you can join and they do, I think it's monthly newsletters that have lesson plans and then a ton of information and resources about, you know, artists, but also like the context around the artists, articles to point to, yeah, just tons of great info. And they, they you know, said it's a newsletter, but it's really They put a lot into like the design of it. So it's like a beautiful, almost more like a magazine.
1: I'm going to definitely check that out. Oh,
0: that sounds amazing. Yeah. Those adding voices, anti-racist art teachers, they're doing so much wonderful work.
1: Yeah. I'm excited. I feel like connecting and networking with other educators is so important. Mm -hmm. Other art teachers. I know, like my first seven years of teaching, I was at a charter school, and I felt so isolated as an art teacher because I was the only Mm. one. Yeah. Yeah. When I moved over to the public school, we actually hired a second art teacher who's just wonderful. My second year there, and it's just like opened a world of sharing and encouragement. And I just can't imagine being the only one again. But I was thinking about it and just reaching out to other educators, like, this whole COVID experience has really, as much as it's disconnected us, it's in some ways made me feel more connected to the art world and art teachers. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's a really valuable thing that I've learned during this time is to reach out, not just to art teachers, but like even my own art practice, because I have been focusing on, you know, having the extra time to build my practice and my art business and just learning how to Reach out and network with other people has been a big theme this year. I've learned so much. I feel like I've grown a lot from it.
0: I love that. (laughs) And I would love to hear more about your art practice. And you've talked so much about the art being a vehicle for change and your work tied Mm -hmm. to feminism yeah I'd love to hear more could you kind of yeah thank you for asking I'm excited to talk about it
1: I would say that I create a lot of work around women's issues and my personal experience as uh, navigating our contemporary world I guess I started making art as a child of course but As I got older, I started using it as a way to cope with anxieties and depression and just trying to process feelings. And I struggled a lot in my youth and early adulthood. And it's still something that I always have to work at. But I struggled with body image issues and eating really bad eating disorder Mm -hmm. that was really altered a lot of my college years and young adulthood and made it very difficult. But I started to use my art to process the feelings and the aloneness. Cause when you're in an addiction like that and you're hiding it from people and you have so much shame, you feel isolated. Mm-hmm. So I used my artwork to cope with that sense of isolation and just like to process the anger I felt and the embarrassment that I was going through. And, you know, through Studying female artists in college, I had some really amazing professors who introduced me to a lot of feminist artists, and I really connected with them and the struggle that a lot of them were going through. And by studying feminism and these particular artists, it helped me to process the world and understand how I'm not the only one going through this, and there's issues as women that affect place in the world. And some of the artists I was really drawn to were the Guerrilla Girls, Barbara Kruger, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jenny Holzer. I studied a lot of Bell Hook's work. She's a visionary thinker and writer. We read a lot about her in education classes. And like I did a lot of work with reading her work as a young adult. And I was heavily influenced by Jean Kilborn and her book, The Deadly Persuasion. And she talks about how like the media can really alter how we see women and Basically, I started thinking about those issues in my artwork and in my own life, how repetitive images have like a power. Repetitive Mm -hmm. images and messages have a real power to shape how we see ourselves and how we see each other and treat each other. And I was tired of seeing this repetitive image of woman being overly sexualized. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being empowered with your beauty and feeling sexy or anything like that. But like just having this limited role of an image of how like a very small percentage of the population even looks and how advertising and media really blighted that and Mm -hmm. how that limits the roles of women. And I just wanted to purge that image from my own consciousness. So I started making a lot of imagery cut out from magazines and art history books and inspired by movies and I made a lot of video art and I just I wanted to just it was almost like that act of when you're an eating disorder whether you're you know there's so many different types of eating disorders but I kind of fluctuated between you know not eating to over exercising to binging and purging and like for me my art just became this purge like instead of throwing up I wanted to just purge through my art and to just reject these images and kind of it was my way of taking back power when I felt like I didn't have power. Mm-hmm. So that's how I started working with feminist art and the imagery, a lot of the imagery that I work with and just getting involved. I connected with the Women's Caucus of Art and when mm-hmm. I was 30 and I had the most amazing experience. I got to be in an exhibition with one of my favorite artists, the Guerrilla Girls yeah. in San Francisco. But I remember going to the show and my work hanging next to them there was a piece uh. called, bananas and it was an interpretation of linda knocklin i'm not sure if you're familiar with her but she does a lot of writing on the underrepresentation of women throughout history Mm -hmm. and like why aren't there any great women artists because we know they're there they just aren't represented fully the way that you know sure we're shifting and we're changing and we're i think we're really doing a good job at like saying shifting the narrative and saying we don't want this anymore we want Mm -hmm. to see an actual representation of our society and our culture, we want that to change in our museum system and higher strata of power. So, yeah.
0: Ah, so much there. I feel like it's so powerful to hear sort of what's behind the work and, you know, thank you for sharing and (laughs) being a little bit vulnerable with, you know, sharing your personal story. It's taken a long time to be able to
1: talk about it Mm because I think it's something that It's easy to acknowledge that, yeah, that's something I went through, but it's harder to acknowledge, like, this is something that still comes up for me sometimes. Right. And it's something that I'm learning by talking about it, that other people are battling with these things. And it goes so much deeper than appearance and Mm -hmm. doing the work in like going into therapy multiple times and really getting to the core of it. I've learned that so much of it has to do with voice and feeling unseen and unheard. And Mm -hmm. when I see that in like our history books and society, it just, it triggers me more to want to like talk about it, you know, because Mm -hmm. everyone wants to be seen. I mean, that's the same thing with our students. I think they all want to be seen and heard and valued and just know that they have a place in the art room and in school.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think sharing these stories is really, really important. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'm noticing too, with your work, that like some of the recent work, you've started adding more text, like really clear, you know, talking about this being seen, heard, valued, inclusion matters, like, you know, these words that are right there in the work. When did that sort of shift happen? Or is that Do you see that as just, it's going to be part of this sort of series? Yeah, I guess it's too many questions in one, but just thinking about text in the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: that's a great question. I think I'll play around with text in the work more. Mm -hmm. Some of my inspirations that I was talking about as far as artists included Barbara Kruger and Jenny Holzer. So they always come to mind when I think of text and like feminist art.
0: Right. Uh, And also
1: the Guerrilla Girls, they're always using text and that series I was imagining them as like billboards and like public
0: yeah like public art or murals
1: yeah like public art but also like the uh what they broadcast them like a public
0: message like oh yeah like a public service announcement yeah I was <laughs> thinking of
1: them like these big public service announcements wow. like on a billboard and I just wanted the people to like stop and look at them and think about it a lot of the imagery that I was using was from famous historical artists like male artists Mm. and the reason I use them is because I kind of was thinking about like pop art like bringing attention a lot of people recognize these images but then there's a message and there's they're altered and there's more to it and before COVID I did a lot of markets and You know, I do live in Arizona and I've done a few like very social distance markets outdoors here. Mm -hmm. And I find that it's a way to kind of bring people in and to open a dialogue about the work. So say, hey, I recognize that looks kind of like a Botticelli painting. What are you doing with that? What is the meaning? And then Mm -hmm. that's like a doorway to open up the conversation about women throughout art history and underrepresentation and like getting them how art can be used as a vehicle for change and speaking up for oneself
0: yeah and that also makes me think of the platform all she makes Mm -hmm. that their directory and then i think art girl rising is also creating a directory
1: definitely actually
0: I'm glad you brought them
1: up. I am a fan of both of their platforms. And I recently had the honor to be
0: included in the All She Makes directory. So awesome. Really
1: excited about
0: that. Doing such good work. And, you know, I love the statistics that they share, too, Mm -hmm. where it's like we're seeing like inching forward, but there's still such underrepresentation. I know.
1: And it's crazy because when I look in my classroom, it's mostly female artists. Female students, and that's what it looks like at the college level, too. But then once we get up into like the higher level of auction houses, it's dismal, it's very low,
0: yeah, uh, unbalanced. Uh, well, yeah. we have to keep pushing, <laughs>
1: we have to keep pushing, we have to keep pushing our students to push, too.
0: Yes, yeah, have to think about it, yeah. And I love also how I feel like you've touched on this, but I like getting into kind of the nitty gritty and just how you're fitting things in? Like you touched on how the schedule changes because of the pandemic have sort of given you more time for art. What does that look like? What does your schedule look like?
1: Yeah, definitely. This year has been such a change with the schedule. I feel like it's really made space for me to be a better educator and also focus on my work. A regular schedule for me is I will go into my classroom, well, when we're hybrid, and I'm there from about 7.30 till about 10.30 or 11. And then I usually come back and I go to my studio and I create or I do, I find that I'm spending actually a lot more time this year working on the business side of my art practice. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of hours just updating my website, my shop, getting myself out there, taking classes. I'm taking a class with Bridget Mayer Gallery and learning mm-hmm. how to present yourself as an artist to galleries. And I'm part of the Art Queens with Kat from Create Magazine. And that has been mm-hmm. such a huge inspiration for becoming more of like an entrepreneur and taking my art serious as a business. I've over the past ten years I've had the chance to really I- exhibit my work. But you know, it's funny, just because you're exhibiting your work doesn't mean you're actually selling a lot of it. So right. yeah, I made it an intention of mine, not January, but January before mm-hmm. so 2020, that I wanted to start making a more serious business selling my artwork. So I spend a lot of my time when I'm outside of the classroom focusing on that aspect of my art and submitting to exhibitions as well or magazines mm-hmm. and just like taking classes and networking is a huge thing for me. Yeah, it's been really great.
0: I know you talked about the markets that you've sold at. Maybe if you could share more about those, but then also are there other places where you sell or show your work and uh, how you're sort of seeking out those opportunities? Yeah,
1: definitely. So like I said, the biggest thing that I found most beneficial as far as seeking out opportunities has been networking Mm -hmm. online, especially Instagram. It's Mm -hmm. such a great tool for meeting other artists and like getting involved with people with platforms like yours or Mm -hmm. All She Makes or Visionary Art Collective, but just reaching out to people. I find a lot of call to arts online and on Instagram. Also, I've been just most of the sales I've made. Honestly, I've had people just asking me to buy my art through Instagram. I recently made a shop and that helps a little bit. The markets, I think, are a really big way of getting yourself out there when you can do it. I know it's just not that ideal right now. I love the markets because I just love talking to new people. You know, we've been so isolated, so it's nice to connect even though we have to have our distance and limitations there but it's a great way to get yourself out there and I do that by making prints of my work and getting professional Mm. photos of my work done and making stickers and buttons and things like that Mm. yeah but like I said I think Instagram has really been the biggest tool for networking and now I'm just trying to build my newsletter because I know that algorithms are always changing on these social platforms and I just really want to be able to keep in touch with people that I meet and keep that dialogue going that way.
0: Right. Yeah, so I would say
1: just to like go online and through opportunities, follow artists if you like their work, reach out to them. I mean, mm-hmm. every artist likes to get a message in their inbox and letting them know that you connect with their work on some level and even like mm-hmm. I recently I had a young woman connect with me through email. She found me on Instagram and wanted to do an art mentorship and now it's more of a friendship, but we, um. you know, it's so cool that we live in this era where we can just see work that we would have never seen before. And I think it's a really powerful time for women too, because I think Mm -hmm. that if there's an art movement that is going down in history, it's going to be how women have come together to create their own community and change the art world on that level. I know it's not just women doing that, but I see a lot of female artists that are just so collaborative, just like teachers, just so sharing Mm -hmm. and giving and encouraging. And it's so cool. It really lights me up.
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I love that. And I feel like this is a place to give like a little shout out to some of the other women I see building those communities. And we were talking a little bit right before this about the work that Lauren Francis Evans is doing with Artist Parent Academic. And then there's Kaylin Butine, who created the Artist Mother podcast and has like built that into a whole community that's just incredible. Yeah. Women building up other women. Amazing. No, it is
1: amazing. And I have to tell you, I've got the most inspiration I've gotten in the past year and a half has been following female podcasters. Uh, yeah. Yes. And just like the jealous curator and I like your work. And I've, it's like how I've, I'm like, okay, I got to follow that person now because I heard about <laughs> them on this podcast and I'm like stalking all these internet, like just <laughs> liking everything. Cause it's so, I don't know. I just, I love it so much. And it's really breaking down barriers. I don't have children, but I love hearing about how women are pushing back against that stereotype that you can't be a parent or mom. And make art and be taken seriously. And it's just so powerful what women are doing right now through their own means of just saying, nope, we're not going to take your old way of doing things. We're going to make a new way of doing this."
0: And I feel like, you know, maybe this isn't so much along gender lines, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the inspiration for this podcast is trying to break that stereotype that you can't teach young people and be a serious artist. Yeah, you can't be a, you know, elementary mm-hmm. or middle or high school teacher mm-hmm. and still be a serious artist who's respected as an yeah. artist. Yeah,
1: it's yeah. powerful. And that resonated with me, because it can be lonely when you feel like you are taking your art career very seriously, and you're a teacher, and then people don't take teachers seriously. Sometimes, I don't know, <laughs> I think it's shifting. But like, there's been that stereotype, and I love to see that people are breaking that apart. And I love that about the work you're doing and Victoria's doing with Visionary. It's just it's so inspiring. and I just really connect with it. I'm, I'm really honored that you had me on your show today.
0: Oh, I feel like, you know, it's so powerful to hear the stories of other people that are kind of doing the same thing, They're pushing forward with art and still, you know, passionate about teaching, kind of juggling both things.
1: And being a parent on
0: top of it. I'm just like
1: (laughs) blown away by that. I hear you learn to manage your time better.
0: Yes. Lots of multitasking and squeezing things into little chunks of time or just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not always pretty. Like I was talking about having my daughter jump into meetings. Yeah. (laughs) She's in the background yelling while I'm trying to listen.
1: Yeah. And I
0: think we're shifting that
1: too, just in general, like it's okay that, children are part of the picture they're part of the work mm. life and you know we don't have to have this old mold of functioning mm. you know like it's okay if you're on a call and your child pops in because it's just life mm. yes. I don't know why we have to have such barriers around what's okay and what's not and I think those are things I've also helped women back too. you know mm. like why can't I have my child popping in and Making a noise when I'm at work or something. Yeah, I don't know.
0: Right. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does totally. <laughs> yes, I think that's so powerful. So, do you have any tips that you would give a teacher, kind of just starting out? Or I like to think of it as what you would have told your former self.
1: I would have told
0: my former self that it's
1: okay to. Be kind to yourself. Mm. Don't overextend yourself, especially that first year. I know there's a tendency as a new teacher for some of us overachievers to like take mm-hmm. on everything. It's okay not to. Right. It's okay to hide in the bathroom and cry when your kindergartners were hiding in the bathroom and just like, oh my gosh, I didn't know how to manage my kindergartners yet. So, and make sure you set boundaries. Definitely be consistent. Management is huge. So don't overthink just the curriculum, you know, make sure you have routines and boundaries set in and make sure you have a mentor. You'll find somebody that you connect with and just really know that they're there to help you. And if you find yourself in a situation where, because I've been in the situation a few times over my course of teaching, if you find that like, for instance, you're in a teacher lounge having lunch and if there's negativity that's going around, get yourself out of there because Mm -hmm. it's not going to help you find yourself some positive people and stay away from the negative talk because our thoughts really do influence our experience. And I used to play tricks where I would make myself think positive when I first started teaching, because it was so hard. I taught Mm -hmm. kindergarten to 12th grade and the day, like it really makes a difference. So just be aware of what you're letting in Mm -hmm. and yeah, find
0: your people. Yeah. I think that's really great advice. And the one that I keep coming back to and sort of struggle with a bit is assume good intentions. Yes, that's a good one. Which it's not always easy. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's good for all areas of life. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to, you know, even little things like my husband loaded the dishwasher in some uh-huh. way that I know is going to make these things like flip over and not get clean or whatever <laughs> like yes. stupid little and to assume that it wasn't intentional that yes. you like he's not trying to like, sabotage you know
1: <laughs> I wish I had that a long time ago because yeah it's a great one I assume good intentions
0: Yeah, I love it. Okay, a few just like fun, more get to know you questions. One, you probably know what's coming. (laughs) The big broad question. What are you curious about?
1: I am curious about what other teachers are doing to connect with their students when they are in remote teaching. And even mm. in the classroom, I find that my, some of my classes, particularly my seventh graders, I'm only teaching six and mm. seventh this year. I'm, I'm having a little bit harder time having them come out of their shell like I normally would. And I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, what are some strategies that I can do to help with their social emotional growth and making sure that they're having a Positive experience. And I don't know. I just, I worry about am I doing enough? It just feels so different right now. And I'm just curious, like some of the strategies that other teachers are using to help their students during this time.
0: Yeah. One that I heard, I don't know if it's really a strategy, but it felt helpful to me to hear Flavia Zuniga West, who started adding voices. She's teaching, I believe, middle school now. And she talked about. Leaning into the silence mm-hmm. while remote teaching, you know, asking a question and then waiting and waiting and waiting. And, you know, even in those awkward moments until yeah. eventually one kid maybe speaks up and then yeah. another and then another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also just sharing your own vulnerability like yeah. you know maybe the question is how was your weekend how are we all feeling and yeah, yeah we do, do a know? lot of that
1: yeah. sixth graders I feel like my sixth graders are more connected and they they're more willing to share but the way that my school does remote teaching it's not even required for the kids to be at office hours so I only meet with them three days a week for 30 minutes so it's just like find ways you know hopefully we don't have to go back to remote again
0: yeah yeah that Uh, might be idealistic, but yeah, I feel like it's so tough. It's a hard age. And then on top of that, Mm. yeah, also just thinking about those students in that hard age being kind of cooped up at home all the time. Can you imagine at that age? Yeah. So I don't know that I have
1: advice, but uh, just something I'm curious about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's good to keep thinking about it. And I keep thinking about how to pool the advice of other educators. Don't feel like any sort of expert here. I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm more like trying to pull together people who know more than I do.
1: That's a great resource.
0: Another just kind of fun question. What is your favorite food?
1: Ooh, I love tacos. <laughs> yes, I'm uh, such a taco
0: gal. It's
1: my go-to tacos and burritos. I
0: love Mexican yeah. food, and I'm in the right place for it. So totally. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I need to make like a chart of. The answers to this question and it would be like half tacos that would our, a lot of
1: people think. our teachers love tacos <laughs> they're so convenient and yummy you're just like mm, yeah. crunchy
0: maybe it's just people in general love tacos. it's funny
1: it is yeah pizza it too. i try not to mm. eat it too much but i we have a great pizza place up the street i live in downtown tucson and mm. there's a place called time market and i love their pizza i try to eat it maybe once every week or two now though because <laughs> i could eat it all the time
0: Yeah. And now I'm realizing, you know, talking about food could also be potentially like triggering in some ways. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a thing. I've shifted that question a lot. Like thinking about, I would ask about like your favorite restaurant or your favorite, your favorite restaurant. Uh And then I feel like that brings up class issues, but also in the pandemic, people that like I'm not going out Uh or even doing takeout really Yeah. So just like missing mm -hmm. that stuff. Yeah. The
1: fact that you brought that up is good. I didn't really think of that, but yeah, it's, it's been hard and I'm living off of 40% of my previous salary. So (sighs) I can't go to get that slice of pizza as much as I'd like to either. It kind of puts things in perspective. It's hard for a lot of
0: people right now. Yeah. And just, I guess, almost like a meta analysis thing. Like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to adjust questions that I ask and think really carefully about Mm -hmm. Their impact, even unintentional impact. And I feel like that's an important thing with teaching as well. Like, how do the way you word a question, the way you ask something, what impact does that have? Powerful. Yeah, I
1: I was reading about not teacher biases and like what we Mm -hmm. teach. For example, I feel most comfortable with painting and drawing and collage, Mm -hmm. but that might not, you know, how teachers can kind of fall into their comfort zone and how that's like a bias and how that doesn't always serve your student. So I'm working Mm -hmm. on breaking out of my comfort zone right now and trying new things with my students, even though it's really hard right now, Uh,
0: teaching. I know. It's been funny. I feel like I work almost exclusively two-dimensionally, but Mm -hmm. I've noticed, like, my students have told me and even parents have told me that the sculpture units, like the sculpture lessons, are the most fun and the most... Like the students have said they understand better Mm -hmm. the processes. I've thought Mm -hmm. sometimes maybe that's because it's not my comfort zone. I almost, maybe it's a tendency to skip over things or to like get more complicated with the media Mm -hmm. that I'm more comfortable with. This makes sense. So it's like I simplify because I don't know. (laughs) Yeah,
1: no, that Um, makes sense because you're... Teaching yourself as you're teaching them right. it does make yeah. sense. My kids love clay. I feel like uh, we haven't yeah. been able to do clay this year, and I'm just like, oh, I, I want you I to. Know.
0: We've done a lot of cardboard. Yeah. It's like, what else can you do with cardboard? Uh, cardboard, paper, pencil.
1: Well, leave it to art teachers to figure it out. You know.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, I love that.
1: I just love seeing all the art teachers come together and unite right away. It was just like mm-hmm. share,
0: share, share. Yes, it's so powerful and so mm-hmm. amazing. And thinking of that sort of sharing, is there anyone that you would want to give sort of a thank you or a shout out to? I would give a shout out to my college
1: professor, Deanne Simone for being super encouraging and my high school art teachers. Also, I would say Kat at Create has been such an inspiration this past Mm -hmm. year connecting and Victoria from Visionary Collective, too, like Mm -hmm. those people. They have been really influential, and I'm just really thankful and fortunate for having connected with them, definitely.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I can link to them as well. And then thinking of linking, where can listeners connect with you online? You can connect to my art at
1: Tracy Brown Art on Instagram mm-hmm. and TracyBrownArt.com, where you can find my website. Miss Brown's art class is where I have some student
0: art posted oh, amazing <laughs> and i will link to that as well thank you yeah thank you so much yeah. tracy thank you rebecca this has been really a lot of fun yeah i feel like there was so much helpful info in there and then Good. also so much vulnerability too and <sighs> sharing and i feel like that's really helpful and necessary
1: thank you thanks for creating this safe space to uh share yes absolutely
0: Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or TeachingArtistPodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of Teaching Artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you.